A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. I remember Shaq had made a comment to me during a game about something that had gone on with the Bulls the previous year, and it was Burkowski had gotten into it with Dennis Rodman. <laughs> and I think he mistook me for Frank Burkowski because they're both a couple of big Polacks. But um, I, I said, no, Shaq, I know all white guys look alike, but that was Frank Burkowski, and I'm, that's not me. <laughs> he kind of chuckled from that. And you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting I'm thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 40. Thanks for joining me. My website, inallairness.com. Just add a forward slash and the episode number to view the show notes. In part two of this special double episode, I welcome back Marquette great and seven-year NBA veteran, Jim McElvain. If you missed part one, please check out episode 39. Just go to inallairness.com forward slash 39. We discussed Jim's college career in depth where he was a standout at Marquette. He talked about his selection in the 1994 NBA draft and first three NBA seasons, including a completely open and honest assessment of his free agent move from the Washington Bullets to the Seattle Supersonics in 1996. This episode features part two of our chat. We continue discussing Jim's playing days with Seattle, his relationship with George Carl and the coaching staff, plus more great stories from on and off the court. Jim talks about his career-ending injury whilst a member of the New Jersey Nets. We also talk about some of the great radio and TV commentators that he admires, chat about his current role as a broadcaster at the University of Marquette, where he was a star, and also towards the end of our mega chat, Jim shares a wonderful, funny story about Gene Hackman, who is the star of the excellent basketball movie Hoosiers. You won't want to miss that. Now, on to the show. When you hear about the way the Sonics operated, you want to be a part of that franchise because you knew they were committed in every way to excellence, and that's what you wanted to be a part of. Fantastic insight there. Thanks very much, Jim, for going into that sort of depth. It sounds like there was just chalk and cheese between the way that the Bullets had run the franchise compared to what Seattle were doing, and obviously that's a, a major reason why you probably considered uh, heading that way as well. And another thing, I just had a look while we were chatting at the box score for one of the final regular season games in 1996. We talked about playing against the Bulls, and you had a near triple-double. I'm um, just looking at it now. You had 11 rebounds, 9 blocks, and 6 points in about 35 minutes against the Bulls. That was their 72nd win in the 72-10 and 10 season. So um, obviously, yeah, finishing the season on a really good note there with your numbers too. 
Yeah, yeah, and like I said, you know, it's not like NBA franchises hadn't had an opportunity to evaluate me prior to that, but for whatever reason, they put a lot of weight in those those 10 games, good or bad, and I know they do that a lot to this day with how kids play in the NCAA tournament, with how kids play in the summer league. They ignore the body of work, and, and maybe that worked against me in the draft my rookie year that I didn't go to the Chicago pre-draft camp because, frankly, nobody else played in that camp that was projected above me. That was the reason my agent held me out, and plus I was trying to graduate from Marquette, and I had to be in school. I wasn't going to skip class to go to the draft and then never get my degree, and that was the same reason I am playing Phoenix or Portsmouth. Here I am trying to wrap up a four-year degree in, in four years, which is not easy to do when you're playing basketball, plus they, they want you to go to these camps. That was the knock against me coming out of college as well. He didn't play in these, these camps, and it's like, you saw me for four years, you know, you must have seen something there that you're somewhat interested in me. But you know, again, apparently those, those 10 games had a, had a big impact on folks. Yeah, well, you saw the big picture, I guess, when you were in college, especially wanting to finish off your four years in, and graduate there before heading to the pros. So you did certainly enough to, to warrant yourself as a, having a great reputation as a really strong defensive specialist too. So that would have held you in good stead, I guess, in terms of those contract negotiations as well. You had your best numbers in that 1997 season in less than 20 minutes a game. You averaged four points, four boards and two blocks a game. Now the team went 57 and 25 and had a tough loss in the seven game Western Conference semis against the Houston Rockets. After playing all 82 regular season games, you missed a majority of rounds one and two of those playoffs. Was that actually due to injury? No. You know, I started for the Sonics, but like I said, I wasn't George's guy. He wanted, and I can understand where a coach is coming from in, in this regard, he wanted control of which players end up on his team because at the end of the day, it's his job on the line if he can't get those guys to play. But mm-hmm. I also understand where Wally Walker comes from because it's his job to evaluate not only talent, but the ability for these different personalities to get along with each other on and off the court. And that's a lot to ask of a coach to focus on that stuff in addition to all the responsibilities with day-to-day management of the team so you know George started me and he played me and it was kind of you know eight minutes at the beginning of the first half eight minutes at the beginning of the second half and then maybe garbage time at the end of the game but Sam Perkins for all intents and purposes was you know he played the starters minutes Mm. And and I don't know if he and Wally had some kind of deal or whatever where George is like well I'm going to play him but I don't want to Um, but once once it came around to the playoffs you know, George just played Sam, and you know, I, you know, Sam was kind of at the tail end of his career, and, and and it wasn't just him; it was Terry Cummings as well that they brought in. You know, those guys had had heavy minutes under their belt during the regular season, and and they had confidence in me and and wanted to see me out there. But it was far more limited opportunities for me in the playoffs, which that's what it is. You know, you you go with who you think is going to give you the best chance to win, and. and George had a, a fair amount of success in, in the NBA, and I'm not going to question his coaching decisions or playing decisions in the least. You know, at the end of the day, I wanted to win a championship, and if that meant I played during the regular season, I didn't play as much in the playoffs, I was fine with that if, if the ring was the end result. Yeah, understood. And I was doing a few Google searches trying to work out if there was an injury or if it was just the way the, the uh, rosters were aligned and what George Carl ended up going with. I guess that answers that question for sure. So thanks for... Yeah, I mean, I, I had broken my wrist during my first season in Seattle, but I had wrapped it and played with it like that and ended up getting it fixed after the season ended. But, you know, it was my left wrist, so I could still shoot. I just had to take it easy when I was trying to take charges or hit the floor not to re-injure it too much. But physically, I was, I was ready to go every game. 
Yeah. Now, in 1998, you went 61 and 21, so that was a great season for the Sonics. But unfortunately, you exited the playoffs in the second round again, but it was courtesy of the LA Lakers, who were led by Shaquille O'Neal, Eddie Jones, and Nick Van Exel, amongst other players. All Shaq did was average 30 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists, and 4 blocks. What was it like actually playing in an era against all-time great big men like Shaq and Elijah Wan, you know, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, those sort of guys. How do you, how can you even sort of put that into some sort of perspective of the guys that you were playing against night in, night out? You know, those were the guys that I looked forward to playing against the most because I always felt like the pressure was on them. And you throw out Shaq's numbers, and, and people expected that of Shaq. And frankly, I was fine if he got those numbers because the numbers I was most concerned with were how many shots was it going to take him to get 30 points? Because mm-hmm. if he got 30 points and 15 shots, then that's not so good. But if, if I could get him to take 25 shots to get 30 points, then that's, that's more where I want things to be. And I'm okay with the end result then because I know he missed a lot of shots and we got a lot of opportunities because of that. The guys that scared me the most, I don't know if scare is a great word, but um, A.C. Earl was a guy who <laughs> you didn't know what was going to happen because A.C. had some games in his career where he dropped 40 on somebody. Okay. And you see the box score the next day, and you're like, wait, that's that's A.C. Earl. He's putting up my numbers on a regular basis. How did he end up getting 40 points on somebody? Yeah, right. So he was and, out of um, Iowa Hawkeyes, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And he was playing for the Celtics, and, and he just put 40 on somebody. It's like, you know, then you're in trouble because if Shaq puts 40 on you, everybody's like, well, yeah, that's Shaq or that's Hakeem. He's he's going to have a game like that. But, yep. you know, if A.C. Earl does it, then what's going on? So Hakeem was the biggest challenge on the court, I thought, because, you know, they listed him at seven feet. I don't know if he was even 6'10". Uh, he could shoot threes. For a guy like me, he'd drag me out on the court. Mm-hmm. And he could pull up on a jump shot, or he could put the ball on the floor, one or two or three dribbles and attack. He had great moves over either shoulder, which is very rare even at the NBA level for a guy to be so dangerous with either hand, either shoulder in the post. And he was just really hard to guard. He could pass really well out of double teams and really quickly. He could react really well. And he's one of those really hard to guard guys. But other guys, even though they had big names, they went to certain shots all the time. So you could play them to their tendencies, and, and they were a little bit easier to defend. But Hakeem was always a challenge, and Shaq, just because of his physical size, was, was always a challenge. And I think he actually used to confuse me with Frank Burkowski because we kind of looked similar. And <laughs> you had the same sort of hairstyles at one stage, too. Yeah, we did. We had flat tops and crew cuts and the goatees and I remember Shaq had made a comment to me during a game about something that had gone on with the Bulls the previous year, and it was Burkowski had gotten into it with Dennis Rodman. <laughs> and I think he mistook me for Frank Burkowski because they're both a couple of big Polacks. But um, I, I said, no, Shaq, I know all white guys look alike, but that was Frank Burkowski, and I'm, that's not me. <laughs> he kind of chuckled from that. No doubt. I think that steps back to the, the 1996 finals when Burkowski and Rodman, there was uh, severe mind games going on. I'm pretty sure in the first game, the Bulls and Rodman managed to get Burkowski ejected pretty quickly. He was given the heave-ho, and uh, that set up a really interesting matchup during the uh, the remainder of the series. But yeah, that's quite funny. Um, just one more thing about your the NBA career as far as your playing days go. In January of 99, the Sonics then traded you to the New Jersey Nets where you played out the remainder of your career. I read online that during a training session in your final season, you ruptured a calf muscle and partially tore an Achilles tendon as well. So that sounds quite painful just even reading it out and just thinking about that. Can you just talk a little bit about that incident and your attempt to rehab that season before you ultimately decided to retire? It was 
I don't, I don't know how that stuff happens. I guess your body just breaks down and you, you push it to the absolute limit and you never expect something like that to happen. There was no contact or anything. We were, we were in practice and I don't know what we were doing, but we were changing ends of the court. Somebody had missed a shot and we were turning to run to the other end. And I turned around to run and it felt like somebody snapped me in the leg with a towel is what it felt like. And my leg just went forward, and I don't know if my toes touched the front of my shin, but it sure felt like they did. And everybody just looked at me weird, like, what's wrong with you? Get up and get down there. I'm like, I did something really bad. I don't know what it is, but I did something really bad. I couldn't put any weight on it. It was like the most grueling 45 minutes to get myself off the court and get through a shower, you know, because you can't, like, carry crutches into the shower or whatever, and I'm, like, hopping around on my one good leg, and and get over and get it evaluated. And sure enough, I'd ruptured the calf and partially tore the Achilles. And Jamie Fike was on my team at that time and had bone spurs underneath his Achilles that he had been trying to play with and it had gotten too painful. And they said, you got to get this taken care of, but if you do, you might never play again. And Jamie had battled through it and said, you know what, I'm at the point right now where I can't play with it the way it is. So I've got to get it taken care of and hope that I can come back. And he never did. So... With that experience and Rod Thorne had come in and wanted to make some significant changes, I had the surgery done. I, I didn't have the surgery done. I'm sorry. The only thing you could do is give it rest. And so you wake up in the morning, and as soon as you put your foot down on the floor, all the blood comes rushing back in, and you feel the pain for you know six or eight weeks. And I had tried like crazy to rehab that thing and get back, and I was probably two weeks away from playing again when the season ended. I didn't know what New Jersey's plans were. Um, I think Lawrence Frank was on the staff at that point, and Lawrence was actually a a graduate assistant at Marquette when I was there. Bobby Knight had asked Kevin O'Neill to take him on the staff as a favor. And so I'd known Lawrence for many years, and I think they waited until I was playing pickup with Marquette at the end of the summer to really know that now there's there's proof. There's a bunch of people that have seen him on the court. He's healthy. He can play again. If we bring him into camp, he could rupture this thing again the first day of camp like Steve Stepanovich or something like that and never play again, and we'd be on the hook for the rest of his contract. Mm. And they wanted to go in a different direction. I kind of look back at my rookie year with Kevin Duckworth and, in Washington and even to some degree with Ronnie Cycli in New Jersey when he had a big contract and was at the end of his career. And, and again with Jason Williams when he blew his, uh, blew his knee out and they wanted him to take the payout and retire, and he didn't want to because he wanted to keep playing. You know, you look at those different experiences in your career and, and you try to say, you know, I'm, you know, for whatever people think about the original contract that I signed, that's part of the business. You know, it's entertainment and, you know, somebody's got to be the hero, somebody's got to be the villain, and, and I'd rather be a rich villain than a poor hero. So it's never bothered me that people were upset about the amount of money that I made or teams offered to me. I think what have bothered me would be if I was the guy, and Scott Skiles, who I played with as a rookie, used to refer to some guys in the league as Jesse James, and you got to have a couple of Jesse James years, and, and you know, at the end of your career where you, you know, you're, just, you're making some money and you're just hanging on, you're not physically really at the level you should be, but you try to steal a couple of years from a team. And, and I don't want to be that guy on the remaining years of my contract, and I didn't want to hold the franchise up if they were trying to go in a different direction and, and win games they'd always treated me fairly and so they offered me a buyout and I said I'll you know I'll take it and at that point Bill Strickland had offered to represent me and all he did was really hold my hand because there wasn't really much to do beyond that I, I had offers from a couple other teams after I took the buyout but if I had gone and played for those teams the buyout would have been offset so I essentially would have been playing for him for free 
because New Jersey wouldn't have been obligated for whatever those teams were paying me unless those teams made the playoffs. So, you know, if you make first round of playoffs, maybe you get $215,000. And, and I had two kids at that point, and, you know, I had been breaking or tearing something every year in my career. And for the most part, I was able to get through the season before I had surgery to fix it. And it became a quality of life question, not just in the immediate part of it, but long-term, how much do I want to beat my body up? You know, to play for a team that's not going to make the playoffs and, you know, maybe make ten or $20,000 more, I can just walk away and try to live a healthy, happy life. And so I did that, and, and they offered that to me at the beginning of September in 2001. In fact, the, the week before 9-11 happened. And, you know, as horrible as that was, there was a lot of uncertainty because I didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know if anybody did after 9-11. You know, would they even have professional sports games, and as crazy as that sounds, it's like, well, if they can fly planes in the buildings, they can fly planes in anything. And you mm-hmm. got 18,000 people at Madison Square Garden. That's a huge target. So I, I didn't know, you know, there's, and living out there, and, you know, I could see the smoke from my house. And there was people in my neighborhood who lost their lives and lost loved ones, and, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen. So you're just kind of sitting out there in limbo, and, and it kind of puts life in perspective that here I am debating whether I want to beat my body up a little bit more, and, and all these people just lost their lives. and. In, in their way of life. So, you know, it gave me a lot of perspective at a time that I probably needed it. Yeah, obviously one of the most terrible moments in world history. And then to put it into perspective as far as your answer goes, yeah, that was really well said. So thanks again for being so open and honest. And I'm just looking at the time that we've been chatting so far. It's, it's over an hour and a half. I'm really <laughs> sorry to have kept you for this long, but I've right. just been loving the conversation. So I hope you don't mind. I have just a few more questions before we, sure. I'll let you get back to your normal life. Yeah, that's no problem. Okay, I've really been enjoying it, Jim. So thanks again for your time. It's been great. Now, going to more of a modern day take, you're currently a radio color commentator with Marquette, as we mentioned a bit earlier. Before we quickly go into your on-air career, who are some of the radio or TV personalities that you've admired over the years? To be quite honest with you, I never paid attention to them. I never thought in a million years I'd be doing something like this. And Tom Crean was at Marquette. And I had moved back to, well, I hadn't moved back to Racine. I was still in Janesville, but I was in Wisconsin. And I tried to get to a game every year. I've always been more of a participant and not so much a spectator. So for basketball, it's hard for me to sit and just watch a game, you know, regardless of what it is. I'd rather be out there doing it. Mm-hmm. And George Thompson, who's a Marquette legend and an NBA and ABA great, was doing the radio with my current partner, Steve the Homer True, and George worked at Briggs and Stratton in Milwaukee and missed several games a year because of work commitments. And they asked me if I could fill in for George the year after Marquette had made the Final Four. And I'd never even thought about doing radio before. And I was really nervous not knowing how to do it. And so I immediately tried to start listening to people doing radio and TV and commentary, trying to figure out what, what are you supposed to do? And Steve the Homer True, who does the radio with me, is just such a phenomenal talent. He, he makes it really easy, makes it conversational, and it almost doesn't feel like you're actually working. It's just, you know, you're enjoying the game with a friend and talking about what you see. So since I started doing radio and some TV, I have started paying much closer attention. And I think Jay Billis does great work. Uh, I think he's got great insight and is phenomenal. And, and a lot of the guys that they have on TV are, are really good at what they do. I know there's there's a website, awfulannouncing.com, that tries to pick those guys apart. But it's not easy work, especially when you're on TV. The play-by-play guy does the heavy lifting on radio because he's got to describe all the action for people who can't see it. And the color guy on TV has to do a lot of the heavy lifting because everybody can see what's going on. They want to know why it's happening. And 
that makes the color job that much more more difficult and challenging. And to be able to do that and to, to bring the kind of insight that they can, you know, especially a guy like Jay who's played the game and really knows it well, it's always a pleasure to, to hear him talk about teams and players and, and what he sees and, and his unique analysis because there's some guys out there that just get the stat sheets during the timeouts or the media breaks and they just read numbers off the of stat sheets. And Jay really analyzes what's going on in the court and makes you think about things that sometimes as a fan you just follow the ball and follow the action of wherever the ball is and you don't see the weak side screens or or guys that are getting into it or the, the setup that goes into making a play happen. But coaches have that vision because they have to. They have to see everything. And Jay brings that. And so he, he does a really good job. I enjoy listening to him do commentary. And then Stephen Howard, who I played with in Seattle, does games on ESPN and does studio work, I think, for uh, Oklahoma City. He's fun. Enjoy listening to him just because he and I talk every once in a while, and I think he does a really good job. And then Stephen Bardo, I see him at the retired players' meetings. Tim Legler, I think Tim Legler and Greg Anthony, both who I played with, were naturals for what they do now because they were always very opinionated as players, always very insightful, and always really good students of the game. Uh, so I think it's a it's a natural fit for those guys, and I enjoy hearing them work as well. Yeah, uh, good to hear. In terms of preparing and researching for your own commentary work, I know that firsthand you've got a, a very keen interest in the media guides. As recently as yesterday, you kindly tweeted me a classic photo of Australia's own Luke Longley from the University of New Mexico's media guide, where he had the full head of hair. So um, you enjoy mixing, <laughs> po- yeah, you enjoy also mixing popular culture and basketball too. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I'm just kind of relishing media guides while they last because there's not going to be that much longer that we're going to even have media guides. And for folks who don't know what media guides are, there's actually an NCAA rule as to how many pages a media guide can have. And it tells you the whole history of the program, the records, biographical information on the players, the coaches, the university. And and the schools also use them for recruiting. They'll send them out to players to kind of give them a background on their school. And so they're kind of brag books, too. They show you how great their practice facility is, what a great city they live in. They've got pictures of Jay Billis and Billy Packer and, and quotes from those guys about what a great environment their arena is. And, and they've got statistics on the coaches that skew to really favor the coaches. Like he's, he's the youngest coach with a last name that ends in Y that's won 100 games in odd-numbered years and, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And so I always like to go through the media guides, and it's getting harder to do because a lot less schools have them now. In fact, very few still produce them. And I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that I I poke fun at them. But the old pictures that they have are great, especially when it's a player like Luke Longley, who everybody remembers from a different era and a different hairstyle. It's fun to see him with the different hairstyles, poses that they would put players in. Some of them are the the most unnatural basketball poses you can imagine, like the Heisman Trophy football pose with a basketball in their hand, and and or they've got them setting up for a jump shot, and they're clearly outside, and there's like a tree and a garage in the background. Like, were, were you taking media guide pictures in somebody's backyard? Uh, so it. I like going through the media guides and seeing that stuff. And I have a blog on ESPNMilwaukee.com. I haven't really been active with it because they don't have Google authorship markup attached to it. And I've told them uh, repeatedly, it's basically invisible to search now if you don't have authorship markup. And I'm on Google+, Plus, so it's easy enough to do. They just haven't got their CMS set up to do it. But for many years, I was, was blogging some of my favorite media guide pictures. But my preparation for the opponent's 
I like to watch game film from what I've had from all my coaches, especially the guys out in Seattle. I scout the other team, and, and I know Marquette pretty well, but I want to know what these other teams are all about, what their players' tendencies are, what this guy likes to do when he gets the ball. And, and there's even some teams that favor one side of the court, like 90% of the plays happen on the right side of the court because they've got a, a left-handed post player that they try to get active in every play. So I, I like to bring that insight to the broadcast that you know, I've scouted this team. It's not just a guy who you know hopped off a bar stool and, and walked into a game and is, is telling you what he sees. It's I've watched the team before. I've seen them in action against some other opponents, and, and I kind of have a feel for what they're all about coming into the broadcast. So it's not going to catch me by surprise every time. It's a, it does sometimes when, when a player does something that we weren't expecting. Good to hear, and I, I like the sort of the behind the scenes stuff that you've done that leads up to when you're doing your commentary as well. And it shows because when you mentioned that ESPN blog, I did find it when I was doing my research for our chat today, and some of the things that I've brought up today are on the back of those excellent pieces of work that you've put out there as well. So hopefully that'll continue, as you said, once the authorship thing gets worked out and, and it can continue in the future because it was really cool. And one of the great things I did read, if you don't mind elaborating on it just for a little bit, you have a really good story about Gene Hackman, Bob Weiss, and an elevator along with yourself. Yeah. Do you mind just kindly sharing yeah, but, that great story? Yeah, I feel bad that I didn't mention Bob because he was one of my all-time favorite assistants. He was also with, on George's staff out in, in Seattle. And when you look at that staff, I mean, every one of those guys was either a head coach before they were an assistant for George or after. And he had really phenomenally talented guys. But um, we, were, we were staying at the Four Seasons, I think, in Georgetown and playing the Wizards. And... <laughs> We got onto the onto the elevator, and, and from reading the blog, you can probably remember Enemy of State or whatever the movie was that Gene Hackman was in with Will Smith. But we get onto the elevator, and Gene Hackman is standing in the back of the elevator, very nicely dressed, button-down coat and hands crossed in the back of the elevator, acting like nothing's going on, almost pretending to be like camouflage businessman, like, are you going to notice that it's actually Gene Hackman in the back of the elevator? Yeah. And so I get on, and I'm like, I don't say anything. I just I see him, I know who it is right away, and turn around, and then Bob Weiss gets on like a floor or two later, and, and you know, his eyes get really big, and he looks at me, and, and I try to play it cool, but... But Bob Weiss is such a character. You know, we get off the elevator, and Bob and I kind of linger by the doors, and Gene kind of makes a quick move through the lobby like a guy would who would get stopped every step he takes because of who he is. Yeah. And and Bob's like, that was Gene Hackman on the elevator. I know it was Gene Hackman on the elevator. So Bob yells across the lobby at Gene Hackman as he's trying to get out of the hotel unnoticed. He says, hey, Gene, would you put in the picket fence for us? And... <laughs> Gene probably has no idea what Bob's talking about, but Gene was in Hoosiers, which is, for basketball folks, it's it's the equivalent movie for basketball players that Spinal Tap is for rock musicians. Everybody watches it. Everybody's seen it. Everybody can quote lines from it. And the thing that basketball people like about it is that it's so realistic, because even though Gene Hackman knew nothing about basketball, whoever did, who was a consultant on the movie, did a really good job with it. And that's, I've seen blue chips, and I know they tried really hard with blue chips. It's not the same. So Gene probably doesn't even know what that reference meant, but anybody who's ever watched Hoosers knows what the picket fence is. So, yeah, Bob yelled that across the lobby at Gene Hackman, and Gene didn't respond. He just kept moving. That was the fun part about being in the NBA, brushes with people of 
notoriety like that. Yeah, that's a great story. And when I read it after I was going through some of the blog posts I found of yours, I was just, uh, I was in near tears just thinking about it because, um, it's just a classic line and, um, serendipitous, I guess, that you're there at the same time. And then you hear that sort of line about a previous movie is really funny. What is the greatest basketball related movie you've ever seen? Can you narrow it down to one? Well, you know, Steve True, the guy that does radio with me, says anybody that doesn't say it's Hoosiers would be crazy. And even though it's not about the NBA or about college necessarily, it's a really good, accurate look at basketball. And it's a credit to Gene Hackman as an actor that he didn't know anything about the game, that he had me fooled. He sounded like coaches I'd had. He had those guys doing things that I've had coaches doing. Okay, put the balls away. We're not even messing around with basketballs. You guys need so much work. I've, I've gone through that. I had friends who were in blue chips. I had friends who were asked to be in blue chips. I actually uh, had a callback for a, a role in Eddie that they ended up giving to Dwayne Shinsis. And okay. all I did was give him my George Mearson invitation for a foreign <laughs> basketball player. I played with Peter Cornell, who was in Will Ferrell's basketball movie. Um, what, what was that called? Uh, semi-pro? Semi-pro, yeah, which I enjoyed. It was funny, but Hoosiers has got to be the one. That's whether you're an NBA player, high school player, college player, if you've had a, a really good coach and, and some of you really stress fundamentals and you've experienced that firsthand, so it's it's fun to see that done so well in a movie. It's kind of like the natural, I, I would think, for baseball players. almost romanticizes the game a little bit. It's a fantastic movie. That would probably yeah, be my favorite of all time. I've seen it many times and love a lot of the dialogue in that film. Gene Hackman played coach Norman Dale, so a fantastic yeah. movie to watch for sure. So that's the link back to that story you mentioned before. Now, just one last thing, Jim, before I push the limits beyond belief. No, I'm, don't worry about it. I mentioned in the beginning you've got many strings to your bow, including being a professional photographer. You enjoy motorsport. You've also done some writing as well, and I alluded to with a blog that you've done for ESPN in the past. Do you mind just quickly expanding a little bit about the endeavors that interest you since retiring? Well, I've always been into cars and automotive stuff. I've, I've always loved water skiing, although I, I didn't really talk about that much when I was playing because I was advised not to say that because you, know, you don't want to scare people. Yeah, well, contracts and, uh, and all. Yeah, and I'd, I'd seen Luke hurt himself body surfing of all things. Yeah, that's right. And I'd heard stories about Shaq tearing up the side of his leg on a moped in Hawaii at the big man's camp. And the right. moped showed up at the standard player contract the next year. And it was just flesh wound, tore up the side of his leg, but scared everybody in the NBA to death, at least the people that write the checks when they, when they saw that happen. Mm. So I was always very conscientious about taking care of my body during the season and during the off season, not putting myself at risk. But you know, once I was done playing, I wanted to go have fun with cars. So I did a lot of open track days uh, with a Camaro. Frankly, I literally can't fit in a Corvette. I can't shut the door. <laughs> and so you, you just get a car you can fit in and go have fun with it. And I didn't spend a lot of money, but I've always been kind of a thrifty guy. And I figured out pretty quickly that I can enjoy motorsports and have a lot of fun with cars and, and, and find somebody else to pick up the tab so i made friends with a magazine editor when i was still playing in new jersey actually the first story i ever wrote for a magazine was a feature on fred dreyer's 9c1 caprice classic fred dreyer for those who don't know follow basketball not football he used to play professional football for the rams and i think the giants and he's always been a big car guy he was also a tv movie star he, he was the star of hunter which is a popular american tv show for many years so his was the first car i ever wrote a story on for a car magazine and and did that while i was still playing in fact i went for a ride in the car on a west coast road trip 
when we're playing like the Lakers or the Clippers or somebody, the, the mechanic came by and picked me up so I could at least get a first-hand feel for what the car felt like. And it was a really cool car. He had it all done up to look like a cop car, but it was super fast. He bought it brand new from the Rhode Island State Highway Patrol. So I had started writing for that magazine, and, and a lot of the car magazines are owned by the same company, Source Interlink. And I'd gotten to know editors at other magazines, and editors would move around just like, NBA players move from team to team mm -hmm. and so I ended up probably writing for a half a dozen different magazines at some point or another and learning the photography as I went along with it and then like a lot of the guys who work for the magazines as either editors or contributing editors got to meet some of the advertisers and got to be friends with the guys that run Optima Batteries, which is based in Milwaukee, and ended up uh, getting offered a job by them and accepting it so now I work for Optima Batteries. I still do a ton of car stuff and Optima Batteries sends me around to do all that. I still do a lot of photography, a lot of writing for them. And it's it's a really cool deal. And, and it kind of dovetails with basketball where car season is wrapping up at the SEMA show in Las Vegas. And I miss the first Marquette game every year, but then I do Marquette games all winter long. And then when that wraps up, then car season, you know, the snow melts and it gets warm and car season starts. And then I go out and do car season stuff all summer. Well, it keeps you nice and busy for sure, and it's great to sort of hear about some of your interests outside of what we most know you for as a basketball player. Um, I know that you have a presence on Twitter and Facebook. How can people best get in touch with you or follow your movements online? Uh, I was in Twitter early, so I was able to steal at Jim McElvain away from all the other Jim McElvains of the world, and I actually know a couple of the other ones who I found on LinkedIn. And then I'm facebook.com slash the real Jim McElvain, not that the other ones are fake, but <laughs> One of the other Jim McElvains beat me to facebook.com slash Jim McElvain. So uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I do post some basketball-related stuff on both of those every once in a while, but a lot of times it's just fun stuff that I'm doing. And it's just a smaller version of the blog that I was running on ESPN Milwaukee, and I'd like to do more on the blog in the future if, if we can get authorship markup on there and make it a little more visible. But until then, I'll, I'll post some interesting photos on Twitter and Facebook, and folks can certainly follow me there. Yeah, look forward to that. And I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been almost two hours, which is just crazy. But please tell your wife I'm sorry for holding you for that long. I, I will. <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciate you calling and giving me the opportunity. I enjoy listening to the podcasts and, and hearing what all my, my friends and former teammates and opponents are, are up to these days. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. So thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate the support there and wish you all the best for the future. And good luck with Marquette for the rest of the season too. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks again, Jim. It was an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest. I encourage you to interact with the show, suggest topics for future episodes or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. I welcome voicemail comments or questions on my website or Facebook page. Since last episode, more great iTunes feedback has again been added. Thanks to Clark Tadashi, I hope I've pronounced that right, Clark, and also Dan in NZ for your excellent iTunes reviews recently added to the USA and New Zealand stores, respectively. Clark says, if you like MJ, the Bulls, and the golden years of the NBA, you will enjoy this podcast. Dan adds, this is a fun retrospective on a golden era of hoops. It's a real fans podcast. So thanks to you both. You're very kind and it does provide continued motivation for me to make the podcast even better. Worldwide, the show currently has 27 reviews and 31 five-star ratings. I'm equal parts humbled and thankful for the great support that you offer my podcast. If you add a review on iTunes or Stitcher, I'd love to mention your name in a future episode of the show. 
given Jim McIlvain is today's guest, it's appropriate that I add your ratings and reviews are like a Gary Payton between the wickets pass, the ultimate assist, helping me to reach a wider audience for the podcast. And this gives you as a listener more opportunity to hear conversations with great guests. You can subscribe to my show in various ways, inallairness.com forward slash iTunes, or you can add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com forward slash Stitcher. Those website addresses will take you straight to those corresponding pages, or you can just search for my show, In All Airness, on your listening device of choice. Speaking of Stitcher, I did recently update my Stitcher profile. However, that did reset all the show data. So if you're a Stitcher user, I really would appreciate your help to increase those numbers once more. My RSS feed appears in the right-hand sidebar of my website. You can subscribe to the show on Player FM and other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.